0: Chapter 10 Of The Million Dollar Suitcase by Alice McGowan This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Million Dollar Suitcase, Chapter 10 A Shadow in the Fog Again I saw that glow from the Gilbert Garage hanging on the fog, a luminosity of the fog. Saw it disappear as the mist deepened and shrouded it. But Worth was answering me, and somehow his words seemed forced. "'Sit tight a minute, Jerry. Have another cup of coffee while I telephone, then I'll put the roadster in and open up down there. I'll call you, or you can see my lights.' He left me. I heard him at the instrument in the hall get his number, talk to someone in a low voice, and then go out the front door. Next thing was the sound of the motor the glare of its lamps as it rounded into the driveway and started down back, illuminating everything. In the general glare thrown on the fog, the fainter light was invisible, but across a plot of kitchen-garden I saw where it had been. A square, squat building of concrete, flat-roofed, vining plants in boxes drooping over its cornice, the typical garage of such an establishment, but nearly double the usual size. The light had come from there, but how? In the short time that the lamps of the machine were showing it up to me, there seemed no windows on this side, only the double doors for the car's entrance, closed now, and a single door which was crossed by two heavy, barricading planks, nailed in the form of a great X. Worth ran the machine close up against the doors, jumped down, and I could see his tall form, blurred by the mist moving about to slide them open. The lamps of the roadster made little showing now as he rolled it in. Then these were switched off and everything down there was dark as a pocket. For a time I sat and waited for him to light up and call me, then started down. The fog was making the kind of dimness that has a curious, illusory character. I suppose I had gone half the distance of the garden-walk, when, thrown up startlingly on the obscurity, I saw a square of white and across that shining screen move the silhouette of a human head. The whole thing danced before my eyes for a bare second, then blackness. With Cummings' queer hints in my mind, I started running across the garden toward it. About the first thing I did was step into a cold frame, plunging my foot through the glass, all but going to my knees in it, and when I got up, swearing, I was turned around, ran into bushes, tripped over obstructions and traveled, I think, in a circle. Then I began to go more cautiously. No use getting excited. That was only worth I had seen. And still I was unwilling to call, ask him to show a light. I groped along until my outstretched fingers came across the corner of a building, rough, stone-like, the concrete garage and study. I felt along, seeing a bit now and was soon passing my hands over the barricading planks of that door. I might have lit a match, but I preferred to find out what I could by feeling around, and that cautiously. I discovered that the door had been broken in, the top panel shattered to kindling wood, the force of the assault having burst a hinge, so that the whole thing sagged drunkenly behind the heavy planks that propped it, while a strong bolt, quite useless, was still clamped into a socket which had been torn, screws and all, from the inside casing. Sliding my hands over the broken top panel, I found that it had been covered on its inner side by a piece of canvas. The screen on which that shadow had been thrown, from within the room. There was no light there now, there was no sound of motion within. The drip of the fog from the eaves was the only break in the stillness. Worth. I shouted at last and he answered me instantly, hallooing from behind me, and to one side of the house. I could hear him running and when he spoke it was close to my shoulder. "'Where are you, Jerry?' "'Where are you?' I countered. Or rather, where have you been?" "'Getting a bar to pry off these boards.' "'A bar?' I echoed stupidly. "'A crowbar from the shed. These planks will have to come off to let us in.' the devil, you say?" I was exasperated. There's someone in here now, or was a minute back. Show me the other way in. I heard the ring of the steel bar as its end hit the hard graveled path. Someone in there? Jerry, you're seeing things. Sure, I am, I agreed dryly. But you get me to that other door quick. The only other door is locked. I tried it from the garage. You're dreaming. For reply I ran up to the door and thrust my fist through the canvas, ripping it away from its clumsy tacking. "'Who's in there?' I cried. "'Answer me!' Dead silence. Then a click as Worth snapped on a flood of light from his pocket-torch, saying tolerantly, tiredly, "'I told you there was no one. There couldn't be.' "'I tell you, Worth, there was. I saw the shadow on the square of that canvas give me the torch." I pushed the flashlight through the opening and played the light-clone about the room in a quick survey, then brought the circle of white glow to rest upon one of the side walls. My hand went down and back to grip fingers about the butt of my revolver. There was, as Worth had said, but one other door to this room. But more, there was apparently no other exit. No windows, no breaks in the walls. My circle of light was on this second door, and the very heart of that circle was a heavy steel bolt on the door, the bar of which was firmly shot into the socket on the frame. The only exit from that room, other than the door through which I now leaned with pistol raised, was locked, bolted from the inside. Worth was crowding his big frame into the opening beside me. "'Keep back!' I growled. "'Someone's inside!' and I sent the light-shaft into corners to drive out the shadows, to cut in under the desk and chairs. Worth's reply was a laugh, and his arm went by me to reach inside the door. Then, as his fingers found the button, a light sprang out from a lamp upon the centre desk. "'You're letting your nerves play the deuce with you, Jerry,' he said lightly. Make way for my crowbar and we'll get in out of the wet.' I made no answer but for a long moment more I searched that room with my eyes. But it was the kind you see all over at a glance. Big, square, plain. It had no window in it. The walls, lined with bookshelves, floor to ceiling. A fireplace. A library table with drawers. A few chairs. No chance for a hideout. I glanced at the ceiling and confirmed the evidence of my eyes. There was a skylight and through it had come that curious glow that first attracted my attention to the place. Then I gave Worth room to wield his tools on the barred door, while I ran quickly back to the house, into the kitchen, and plumped down in the chair where I had sat before. The light showed on the fog, brightened and dimmed as the mist drifted past. There was no possibility of a mistake. Someone had been in the study, had turned on the table lamp, had projected his shadow against the patched panel of the door, and had somehow left the room, one door bolted, the only other exit barred and nailed. I went back and rejoined Worth, who was standing where a brownish stain on the rug marked a spot a little nearer the corner of the table than it was to the outer door. A curious place for a suicide to fall. Behind the table was the library chair in which Thomas Gilbert worked when at his desk, Beside it a small cabinet with a humidor on its top and the open door below revealing several decanters and bottles, whiskey and wine-glasses, a tray. Between the desk and the fireplace were two other chairs, large and comfortable, but in front of the table, between it and the door, was barren floor. It is a fact that most men who shoot themselves do so while sitting, some lying in a bed, few standing. The psychology of this I must leave to others, but experience has taught me to question the suicide of one who has seemingly placed the muzzle of a revolver against him while on his feet. Thomas Gilbert had stood, had chosen to take his life as he was walking from door to desk, or from desk to door. "'Worth,' I said. "'There was somebody in here just now.' "'Couldn't have been, Jerry,' he answered absently then added, his eyes on that stain, I never could calculate what my father would do, but when I talked to him last night, right here in this room, he didn't seem to me a man ready to take his own life. You quarrelled? We always quarrelled, whenever we met. But this quarrel was more bitter than usual? The last quarrel would seem the bitterest, wouldn't it, Jerry? he asked. Then, after a moment. "'Poor Jim Edwards!' I caught my tongue to hold back the question. Worth went on. When I phoned him just now, he hadn't heard a word about it. Seemed terribly upset. "'Hadn't heard?' I echoed. "'How was that?' "'You know we saw him at Tate's last night. He took the Pacheco Pass road from San Francisco, drove straight to his ranch without hitting Santa Isabel. I wanted another look at that man Edwards.' I was to have it," Worth went on absently. He'll be along presently to stay here while I'm away Monday. Told me would be the first time he put foot in the house for four years. As boys up in Sonoma County, he and father always disagreed, but sometime, these last years, there was a big split over something. They were barely on speaking terms, and good old Jim took my news harder than as though I'd been telling him the death of a near friend works like that with us humans," I nodded. "'Let someone die that you've disagreed with, and you remember every row you ever had with them. Remember it and regret it, which is foolish.' "'Which is foolish,' Worth repeated, and seemed for the first time able to get away from the spot at which he had stopped. He went over to the empty, fireless hearth and stood there, his back to the room, elbows on the mantel, propping his head face bent, oblivious to anything that I might do. It oughtn't to be hard to find the way this place could be entered and left by a man solid enough to cast a shadow, with quick fingers to snap the light on and off. But when I made a painstaking examination of a corner grate with a flue too small for anything but a chimney swallow to go up and down, a ceiling solidly beamed and panelled, the glass that formed the skylight set in firmly as part of the roof, when I turned up rugs and inspected an unbroken floor, even tried the corners of a bookcase to see if they masked a false entrance, I owned myself, for the moment, beaten there. "'Give me your torch, or go with me, Worth,' I said. "'I'd like to take a scoot around outside.' He didn't speak, only indicated the flashlight by a motion, where it lay on the shelf beside his hand. I took it, unbolted the door, and stepped into the garage everything all right here. My roadster, a much handsomer small machine beyond it, a bench, portable forge and drill, made a repair shop of one corner. And as my light flashed over these I checked and stared. Why had Worth gone to the shed hunting a crowbar to open the door? Here were tools that could have served as well. i put from me the hateful thoughts and damned Cummings and his suspicions. The shadow didn't have to be Worth. Certainly he had not first lit that lamp, for I had seen it from the kitchen with him beside me. Someone other than Worth had been in there when Worth put up the roadster. I'd find the man it really was. But even as I crossed to Eddie Hughes's door, something at the back of my head was saying to me that Worth could have been in that room, that there was time for it to be, if he had taken the crowbar from the garage, and not from the shed as he said he did. At this I took myself in hand. The lie would have to be so clumsy a one that there was no way but to accept this statement for the truth. And some one else had made that shadow on the canvas. I tried the chauffeur's door and found it locked. Called, shook it, and had set my shoulder against it to burst it in, when the rolling door on the street side moved a little and a voice said, yeah, what are you doing there?" I turned and flashed my light at the six-inch crack of the sliding door. It gave me a strip of man, a long drab face at top, solid, meaty-looking, yet somehow slightly cadaverous, a half-shut eye, a crooked mouth. If I'd met that mug in San Francisco, I'd have labeled it tough, and located it south of Market Street. Slowly, it seemed rather reluctantly. Eddie Hughes worked the six-inch crack wider by working himself through it. "'What the hell do you want in my room for?' he demanded. The form of the words was truculent, but the words themselves slid in a sort of spiritless fashion from the corner of that crooked mouth of his, and he added in the next breath, "'I'll open up for you when I've lit the blinks.' There was a central lamp that made the whole place as bright as day. Eddie fumbled a key out of his pocket, threw the door of his room open, and stepped back to let me pass him. "'Capehart tells me worse here,' he said as we went in. When? I gave him a sharp look. He seemed not to notice it. Just now I came straight from there.' He came straight from there? Did he supply an alibi so neatly because of that shadowy head on the door-panel? For a long minute we each took measure of the other. But Eddie's nerves were less reliable than mine. He spoke first. Well? He grunted, scarcely above his breath. And when I continued to stare silently at him, he writhed a shoulder with, What's doing? What do you want of me? Still silently, I pulled out with my thumb through the armhole of my vest, the police badge pinned to the suspender. His ill-colored face went a shade nearer the yellow-white of tallow. ''What for?'' he asked huskily. ''You haven't got nothing on me. It was suicide. Coroner's jury said so. Lord, it has to be, him laying there, all hunched up on the floor, his gun so tight in his mitt that they had to pry the fingers off it. So you found the body?'' He nodded and gulped. ''I told all I knowed at the inquest,'' he said doggedly. ''Tell it again,'' I commanded. Standing there, working his hands together as though he held some small, accustomed tool that he was turning, shifting from foot to foot, with long breaks in his speech, the chauffeur finally put me into possession of what he knew, or what he wished me to know. He had been out all night. That was usual with him Saturdays. Where? Over around the canneries. Had friends that lived there. He got into this place about dawn and went straight to bed. "'Hold on, Hughes.' I stopped him there. "'You never went to bed, that night or any other night, until you had a jolt from the bottle inside.' He gave me a surly, half-frightened glance, then said quickly, "'Not a chance. Bolts on the doors. Blocks everywhere. All tight as a jail. Take it from me, he wasn't the kind you want to have a run-in with any time. Always just cool as ice himself.' Try to make you believe he could tell you what you were up to, clear across town. Hold it over you as if he was God Almighty that stuck folks together and set him walking around and thinking things." He broke off and looked over his shoulder in the direction of the study. The walls were thick, concrete, the door heavy. No sound of Worth's moving in there could be heard in this room. Apparently it was the old terror of his employer or the new terror of the employer's death that spoke when he said, "'I got up this morning late with a throat like the back of a chimney. Lord, I never wanted a drink so bad in my life. Had to have one. The chink leaves my breakfast for me Sundays, but I knew I couldn't eat till I'd had one. So I—so I—' It was as though some recollection fairly choked off his voice. I finished for him. "'So you went in there.' I pointed at the study door, and found the body. No, How the hell could I? I told you. Locked!' I crawled up on the roof, though, hunting away in, and I looked through the skylight. There he was, on the floor. His eyes weren't open much, but they was watching me, sort of sneering. I come down off that roof like a bat out of hell, and scuttled over to Vandermans, where his chink was on the porch, I bellering at him. I telephoned from there. For the bulls. And the corner and everybody. God, I was all in." I caught one point in the tale. So, the way into the study is through the skylight, Hughes. And he shook his head vaguely, fumbling his lips with a trembling hand, as he replied, "'Honest to God, Captain, I don't know. I never tried. I gave just one look through it and—' He broke off with a shudder. Get a ladder, I commanded. I want to see that skylight. While he was gone on his errand to the shed, I investigated the outer walls of the study with the torch, hunting some break in their solidity. They were concrete. A hair crack would have been visible in the electric glow. There was no break. Then, as he placed the ladder against the coping, I climbed to the roof and stepped across its firmness to the skylight. I looked down. Worth, kneeling on the hearth, was laying a fire in the corner grate. As he did not glance up, I knew he had not heard me. Evidently, the study had been built to resist the disturbance of sound from without. That meant that the report of the revolver inside had not been heard by anyone outside the walls. Directly below me was the library table and upon its top a blue desk-blotter. A silver filigreed inkstand stood open. Pen-holders, pencils, paper-knife were on a tray beside it, one pen lying separate from the others with a ruler upon the blotting-pad. Books and a magazine neatly in a pile. The walls, as I circled them with my eyes, were book-lined everywhere except for the grate and the two doors. Then I inspected the skylight, frame and glass, feeling it over with my hands. There was no entrance here. Even should a pane of glass be removable, all seemingly solid and tight, the frame between and the sash were of steel, and the panes were too small for the passage of a man. I crept back to the ladder, as Worth was striking a match to light the pitch-pine kindling. "'What about this and chink?' I asked of Hughes, as I rejoined him at the foot of the ladder. "'Does he hang around here much?' "'Him and Chung visit back and forth a bit.' I hear him talking highly high-low sometimes when I go by the kitchen. Take me over there," I said. The fog was beginning to blow away in threads. Moonlight somewhere back of it made a queer, gray, glimmering world around us. We circled the garden by the path, passing a sort of gardener's tool-shed, where Hughes left the ladder, and from which I judged Worth had brought the bar he pried the door-planks off with to find a gap in a hedge between this place and the next. There was a light in the rear of the house over there, and a well-trodden path leading from the hedge-gap made what I took to be a servant's highway. Vandeman's house proved to be, as nearly as one could see it in the darkness, a sprawling bungalow, with courts, pergolas and terraces bursting out on all sides of it. I could fairly see it of a fine afternoon with its showy master sitting on one of the showy porches, serving afternoon tea in his best manner to the best people of Santa Isabel. Just the husband for that doll-faced girl, if she only thought so. What could she have done with a young outlaw like Worth? When I looked at the Chinaman in charge there, I gave up my idea of questioning him. Civilly enough, with a precise and educated usage of the English language, he confirmed what Eddie Hughes had already told me about the telephoning from that place this morning, and I went no further. I know the Chinese—if anybody not Mongolian can say they know the race—and I have also a suitable respect for the value of time. A week of study questioning of Vandeman's yellow man would have brought me nowhere. He was that kind of a chink—grave, respectful, placid, and impervious. On the way back I asked Eddie about the Thornhill servants at the house on the other side of Gilbert's, and found they kept but one, a sort of old lady, Eddie called her, and I guessed easily at the decayed gentlewoman kind of person. It seemed that Mrs. Thornhill was a widow, and there wasn't much money now to keep up the handsome place. I left Eddie slipping eel-like through the big doors, and went into the study to find Worth sitting before the blazing hearth. He looked up as I entered to remark quietly, Bob said she'd be over later, and I told her to come on down here. End of chapter 10